traffic coming into Sant and so. But I think in the interest of, of time, uh, we should kick the session off. Um, I guess uh, once you arrive, we'll reintegrate into the program. So thank you to all of you, both Cape Town and Joburg, for coming to the first alternative session of for 2018. Um, uh, so my name is Mali Zole Vegeza. I chair the Alternatives um, Forum. And um, effectively, just to give a bit of background, um, the forum was formed back in 2014, right? It consists of working actuarial students as well as uh, qualified actuaries. And the forum uh, focuses really on three main asset classes, which are hedge funds, private equity, and as well as infrastructure investment. And really, we look at it from the point of view of the suitability of these uh, investments for institutional portfolios, such as pension funds mainly on the pension fund space because uh, of re restrictive regulations on the life insurance side, i.e. SAM, which tends to heavily penalize these types of investments. In any case, uh, our activities are centered around um, education, research, market awareness, as well as external partnerships with uh, other professional bodies uh, within the industry. And as I mentioned, we look at uh, these investments from a strategic asset allocation perspective, as well as an underlying fund management perspective. And uh, a, 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 a significant third portion of it is basically looking at it from a, a broader social and policy perspective uh, in terms of the ESG benefits that these, these asset classes do provide. Um, the rationale for the committee really is to look at uh, um, is that as, as, as financial markets effectively evolve, I mean, there's a need to rethink uh, investment strategies, right? Um, we feel that pension funds should evolve the way they look at their asset allocations and incorporate and keep up with the pace of, of the changes of uh, financial markets. Right? Uh, this incorporates socio-political changes um, as well as uh, you know, more broader sort of general financial uh, uh, trends and changes. Now, there will always be a need for traditional asset classes such as equities and bonds. Uh, we're not necessarily writing those off but I think there is a, a need to rethink and relook at these sort of newer up-and-coming alternative assets, right? So some of the benefits that they do provide include improved financial returns, uh, improve, improved portfolio diversification leading to more stable returns, as well as uh, broader social benefits such as economic growth, the relief of government budget constraints, which could arise from, for example, institutional investment into infrastructure assets, uh, they include job creation, for example, which could arise from investment into infrastructure as well as uh, SMMEs, uh, among others, all of which you may not necessarily get from traditional asset classes such as uh, listed equities and bonds. Now, the market needs to discuss and un unpack these un and understand these asset classes and not just incorrectly perceive them as risky, number one, or perhaps equally detrimentally not invest into them without fully understanding them, which is a scenario which we, you know, we, don't, we don't necessarily advocate for as well. Um, a good example, really, of, a, of the need to rethink these types of investments uh, is uh, the fall of Steinhoff, right? Uh, and this is a question I'd pose to anyone, really, in, in the broader sort of investment in financial markets, right? Is investing passively into a, a blue-chip stock, which is listed on a popular market index, uh, necessarily safer, because every other institutional investor is doing that, than investing into a niche asset class, which is arguably slightly less known, but uh, could have benefits other than uh, uh, potentially better financial returns in themselves, which include obviously broader ESG perspectives. You know? That's some food for thought, which I'd encourage anyone in, in the room and outside in the broader market to, to, to discuss uh, going forward.
right? So we're not necessarily advocating an increase into alternatives as, as is, right? Um, for example, we're not necessarily advocating an increase in the limit uh, that Regulation 28 puts onto uh, alternative investments, which in aggregate sits at about 15% at the moment. But if you look at the actual investment uh, allocation amount, it's, it's far less than you know, the, the, the actual limit which is specified under Regulation 28. It's, it's in the very low uh, single digits, if I, if I remember correctly. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is a liability-driven exercise. We don't necessarily violate the principle that the liabilities should determine the nature of the assets that are invested into. You know, we are not necessarily, as I say, we're not trying to sell alternatives, but we, we are trying to create the platform for a holistic discussion on whether these newer up-and-coming asset classes are suitable or not for these uh, institutional investors. Now, the overarching theme, really, of the committee is to take traditional actuarial skills and apply them into less orthodox areas where they are still fully relevant and add value. Um, traditional actu areas of actuarial practice, such as healthcare and life insurance, will always uh, be there, and there will always be a need for actuaries in that space. But we are, what we are trying to do is to push the frontier of the profession into broader sort of uh, areas and realms where, you know, traditionally they may not have uh, played a very active role in the space as well. Um, to quote an ex-president uh, of, of the institute and faculty, uh, Frank Reddington, which I'm sure many of you do know, uh, although the, co the quote could be you know, put in a, into a broader context, but he did um, mention that you know, the actuary who is only an actuary is not an actuary. That's one of the famous quotes that he's remembered for. You know? And we try to sort of embody that uh, spirit within the committee as well. Now, coming to this particular session, um, we focus on the specific asset class uh, private equity and within that the sub-area of SMME and venture capital investing. Right? It is particularly topical because of the importance of entrepreneurship nationally from a social and demographic perspective right? as well as from an economic growth perspective. Right? Um, some of the stakeholders, stakeholders really are starting to realize the role that pension funds can play in the, in the advancement of this sector which ties in with broader national objectives. If the underlying investments are made correctly, they can produce good risk-adjusted returns and help with the portfolio's diversification and the overall stability of returns. However, it is important that the industry invests correctly into this asset class. Pouring more capital into the space, space without a well-thought-out plan, which involves uh, as many stakeholders uh, discussing these issues as, as possible, will not necessarily yield the results that we are looking for and could counter effectively the, the benefits of uh, going forward with uh, this type of investment. Now, part of the aim of the session is to bring various parts of the industry together to discuss and help to chart a best way forward. Uh, these parties are government, pension funds, the private sector, development finance institutions, as well as, of course, uh, the actuaries. Before I introduce the speakers, though, I must note that we had sent an invite to the uh, Minister of Small Business Development, uh, which she accepted, but unfortunately she has a state visit today, so she was not able to make it and we weren't able to find a representative uh, in time to replace her. So I'd like to thank, the conversation will be taken forward to them, however, as they're, important, they're an important stakeholder in, in this entire process. So I'd like to thank the guests for coming uh, to help uh, unpack this discussion. Um, I will introduce them one by one, and as I read out their biographies, I'd like them to come to the front and take uh, their seats. Thank you. So, in terms of the format of the session as well, the first hour, roughly up until 5.30, will consist of a panel discussion with the, uh, with the invitees, 
and then the last 30 minutes will be consists of uh, audience uh, questions from the audience. So first is from the GEPF. We have Linda Mateza, who is the head of investments and actuarial services at the GEPF. The GEPF is Africa's largest pension fund with more than 1 million members in assets worth 1.8 trillion rands. Um, Linda holds a master's degree in finance and investments from the University of the Witwatersrand. She's a fellow of the, of the Africa Leadership Initiative. Second up is Ndabezi Ntlemkize. He is the chief investment officer of the ESCOM Pension Fund and has been in the financial services industry for about 20 years in both actuarial and investment management related work. He has done work in South Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as Europe. He is a chartered financial analyst as well as a chartered alternative investment analyst and has completed uh, an investment management workshop at, at Harvard Business School and advances in asset allocation course with the ED, uh, HEC, Risk Institute, and a managing and leading people course at Wits Business School. Uh, the speaker that is not here at the moment is Lynette Dooley. I'll read her bio out uh, in any case. So Lynette Dooley is the founding director and CEO of Innate Investment Solutions, a professional uh, services firm in the built environment that provides property and infrastructure development services and enterprise asset management solutions. Passionate about youth uh, development and leadership, Lynette is a founding director and chairman of Ignite SA, a youth-oriented uh, digital media and program platform which curates uh, content in education skills and entrepreneurial development in South Africa. She's a World Economic Forum Global Shaper, a 2014 Mandela Washington Fellow and a 2018 Tutu Fellow. She's a multiple media and award uh, in, and industry award recipient and currently presents a business TV show called SME Funding on Channel 412, uh, 412 on DSTV on a weekly time slot. And lastly, we have Stuart Bartlett, who Stuart has worked with the IDC since 2000, starting off as a regional manager in the Eastern Cape, and in 2002 as head of agency development and, and support service, uh, sorry, head of agency development and support department, uh, which served as a catalyst for integrated sustainable local and regional development in marginalized areas, which provided funding and support for the identification, facilitation, development, and promotion of uh, opportunities and potential. Towards this end, the department managed various funds including their support development agencies, social enterprises, spe spatial interventions and partnerships, and inclusive business. Recently, in April 2015, the mandate of the department was broadened to include the role of uh, supporting the IDC to achieve greater impact within specific outcomes including black industrialists, triple uh, BEE, youth empowerment, women empowerment, township economy, employee ownership, uh, regional equity, localization, community empowerment, and environmental impact, and renamed the Development Impact Support Department. Stuart. Could we please uh, just welcome our speakers? Okay, so I think uh, let me kick off uh, with the uh, pension funds. Um, so first question really is, Linda, do, you, do pension funds see the value in investing into this asset class, uh, SMME investments, as well as do they see the value of entrepreneurship in SA from an overall or high-level perspective? 
Thank you. Malizola, can everyone hear me? Okay, I'm a little old now since you last saw me, uh, so you're going to have to break your question up into parts <laughs> one to three. But let me start with um, your first part, which yeah. was, do pension funds recognize the importance of investing or do they see it as important to invest in SMMEs? And we definitely do, uh, particularly in a developing country like South Africa. Uh, we recognize that the pools of capital are scarce in a country like ours, in a region like ours in Africa. There are not so many angel investors, for example. We don't have the kind of venture capital investing culture that uh, countries like the United States have, for example. And so there's a, a role then in which pension funds step in to fill those gaps in terms of funding where the government's budget is insufficient. Having said that, though, um, it's not an easy sell, I think, to many trustees. Uh, to your example earlier of Steinhoff, many trustees would rather take the risk of investing in a large blue chip listed entity rather than in an unknown entity that perhaps hasn't been tested for as long and hasn't been listed. And there's a greater risk, let's say, of being sued or of things going horribly wrong if you take a risk on an unknown entity than on a known entity. So it, it, it's, it's hard for, I think, us as fiduciaries to, to consider VC and investing in SMMEs as, a, as an easy route to follow. Uh, but at the same time, we do recognize the importance of it. Okay. Now, Vizinja, do you share the same sentiments? From your, from your <clears throat> well, uh, I'll be a bit uh, uh, nuanced. Uh, if you think of uh, private markets or private equity as having probably four main strategies, uh, that being buyout, uh, growth equity, uh, mezzanine, and uh, venture capital uh, or early stage. Um, so uh, we have been investing across the board, across uh, buyout, mezzanine, growth equity, uh, not much in the small medium enterprise. Uh, again, it's finding the right managers uh, to back. And I think every time when we talk about venture capital, all of us are thinking of Silicon Valley or uh, thinking about those healthcare startups in, in the Cambridge area of um, uh, Boston. Uh, but we are not finding the same thing in South Africa, or at least not in large numbers. Most of the people that we are talking to in the small medium enterprises are probably looking at um, things like uh, franchisees, uh, be it a KFC, McDonald's, or something like that. So we would definitely, um, while we encourage those things to, happen, uh, to, to take us and to develop, um, you need to make sure that we are backing the ones that are likely to, to succeed. Um, and I'm, I've put the context that in private equity, in growth equity, we are already there. Um, one has to always counterbalance uh, the needs of the, the, the investors, the pension funds. They want their uh, income replacement ratios to be high. They want their funding ratio to remain high. Um, if you're going to lose their money on something that you have not thoroughly researched or has a high failure rate, you have to have a very good reason to do so. Having said that, though, we have put in place a risk budgeting framework that allows us to be able to take those risks in a calculated, um, in a calculated manner um, uh, to make sure that we're not betting the, 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 the whole farm in, in, in one area um, and, to, um, and to make sure that within 
the area of impact funds, we can still invest in, in small, medium enterprises. Um, I'll be able to uh, expatiate a, a, a bit more, uh, Malzorda, when uh, we are probably getting into uh, what can be done in this space. Um, but uh, suffice to say that in the past, we've uh, invested mainly in mezzanine, private um, buyout funds, as well as growth equity. Thanks, Dabazin. Um, so, Stuart, I think from where you sit, what are the main challenges that you have faced uh, more at a ground sort of level uh, as far as the IDC when it comes to successfully funding you know, uh, this space? Uh, this includes due diligence issues regarding the underlying companies that are applying for, for funding. I feel a little bit like a fish out of water here uh, amongst uh, all of these uh, people that are very uh, financially... Uh, I'm an anthropologist, by the way, and certainly not... Um, uh, don't have much of a, uh, a background in, in this, but however, uh, IDC uh, finances, uh, according to the IPAP uh, program, largely in the industrial development space, um, and we've been, uh, so, so most of our, uh, our investments are along those, the lines of those sectors. Now, getting to, to my particular role in the issue is that uh, we also know that we are unlikely to, to make a difference just by investing in businesses. It's any, any investment really does impact. But how do we get uh, a maximized impact and outcomes of that, uh, through that uh, investment? And that's the role that my department plays. So we particularly focus on uh, supporting right across the sectors, the participation and involvement of youth, uh, broad-based empowerment, uh, uh, women, uh, communities, um, employee, uh, employees, etc., uh, and so on. So, uh, unlike normal banks, and I guess any investment bank, uh, IDC does not necessarily take uh, collateral from, you know, or too much collateral from the uh, from the clients. We're generally a lender of last resort. So, uh, and being a development finance institution, if I lend you money, I'm not going to necessarily uh, take takes uh, security of your, your house, your car, your mother-in-law, your dog, and that type of thing. We, we, we need to try and find a way uh, out of that, uh, or to try and drive that in a, in a different way. And that's where the IDC due diligence process is really um, our, our risk mitigant. And we spend a lot of time, a lot longer than banks, because we're not getting any, we don't have access to your, your um, your bank accounts and, and, like, and so on, which you find in a normal banking environment. We need to place our emphasis on the, the business case and so on. And that's where we find the biggest challenge. So, uh, and particularly, we also, uh, in general, supporting the, the uh, uh, people that are a little bit more risky, probably a little bit, uh, are not necessarily um, Clients of the, 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 the of the other banks, we, as I say, lost resorts, and and we have to find a way in which to make we still try and meet those outcomes, and put money into the economy, um, and, and as you say, the due diligence process tries uh, it, it deals with that, and and that is why it's uh, so complex and and long. <laughs> sure, sure, thanks, thanks. Uh, so Lynette, um, I mean, from where you sit. 
how do we change the ecosystem for entrepreneurship in SA? And in your experience, really, what are the top issues that need to be prioritized, uh, even though we may not necessarily get everything right as a nation uh, because of our unique uh, social circumstances? Um, what are your thoughts on that? All right. Um, can everybody hear me? All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, and thank you very much to Manipur and the team for the invitation. My name is Lynette Mdouli. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Lynette Investment Solutions. Um, Entrepreneurship in South Africa, you know, I think perhaps the first thing when I look at the ecosystem that we need to look at, 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 at almost resolving and, and getting rights, is definitely, first and foremost, the area of skill. We're a nation that has many great ideas. Um, we're a nation that also has many great problems to solve. Um, and at the heart of creating solutions, and at the heart of converting an idea into an actual activity, particularly an activity for commercial, with a commercial outcome, should I say, is being the issue of how do you place an entrepreneur with the requisite skills to do that conversion? And I think one of the things that we've typically focused on, particularly, has been the issue of funding and the issue of access to markets. Um, the issues around building incubators and competitions and all manner of almost the, the good stuff that comes at the end of the ecosystem, but we haven't focused on the jockey nearly enough. We don't talk about entrepreneurship in this country at our dinner tables. We don't talk about entrepreneurship amongst our friends. We talk about everything that's happening on Twitter. We talk about everything that's in the news. We talk about... Um, you know, South Africans are generally quite critical people. We need a lot more sunshine in our conversations. But we're not talking about, my friend, what are you strong at? What are you weak at? And how do we convert that into a commercial opportunity amongst our friends, even? And therefore, to escalate that conversation um, at a far broader, and at a far more intense, um, in a far more intense pace, makes it quite difficult if that conversation itself around skills and entrepreneurship is not one that is commonly held, not one that is held enough. And so, you know, for me, I would definitely, as a priority, start looking at the space related to entrepreneurial education. Typically, South African um, business education is very elitist, it's very exclusive, it's very expensive. And yet, on the, on the um, converse side of it, we've taken entrepreneurship and we've made it the band-aid to the threats of unemployment and poverty and a sinking economy. So you cannot have the two at such extremes and there's got to be a middle that's found around better capacitating the jockeys to convert um, their ideas and to convert problems into actual solutions and um, commercial enterprises that are sustainable that are scalable, that are replicable, because that's also critical um, in our space. Thanks, thanks, Dennis. Just to follow up from that, what are your thoughts on an ideal model for uh, SME invest, sorry, fund management? Right, given that early stage investment in SA is a relatively small uh, piece of the pie when it comes to the overall PE uh, space. Um, you know, our fund managers in South Africa are still very much locked in that traditional paradigm of backing established horses and backing businesses that have proven metal. 
And yet where we are in terms of the entrepreneurial ecosystem right now is that we don't have an established or big enough establishment in our SME space. And therefore, just the words that are used in the fund management world need to be redefined. You know, risk, for instance. What is risk in relation to an SME versus the traditional role of risk? And those redefinitions need to be responsive to what the entrepreneurial markets in South Africa actually looks like. And similarly, then, the steps, the requirements, the securities, and all the, the different collateral that I think fund managers in particular like to attach to what they do needs to be redefined to be responsive to the needs of the actual market as it currently looks. And until that happens, what's typically going to happen is that the fund management world is always going to revolve in its establishment and disregard informality and disregard small businesses and the different dots that they connect. And in and, and I guess to their detriment, disregard where the next wave of opportunity actually lies for their growth. So until you redefine terms, until you redefine what it is that attracts you, and until you redefine what it is that you're willing to invest in, um, it, it means that the fund management world will always be on the outside of what the SME and South Africa typically means. True, true. Just to follow up on that, Stuart, uh, what are the issues that you'd like entrepreneurs uh, to sort of focus on to improve the outcome for everyone uh, in the rest of the ecosystem, really? Well, uh, I, I, I agree with you. There's, uh, there's, there's a huge amount of... Uh, the, the emphasis should be on the jockey, and we, we, we've, we've, we haven't necessarily uh, put enough emphasis on that. And... Uh, um, in, in my case in particular, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm divorcing myself from the rest of IDC and putting it into the development impact uh, side of things. Yeah. Uh, one of the programs that we, do, we run is supporting youth entrepreneurs, for example, and women entrepreneurs. And, and we find that uh, both, both these, if we could almost marginalize groups, uh, moving into the industrial space, it's very difficult. Is so much more uh, geared up for retail and services, and not the industrial space. So we really have a have a challenge there because uh, the uptake of youth employment or, or, or women into industrial space and, and so on is just not there. The, the experience you can only become entrepreneurial in that in the industrial space if you have some sort of experience. You've got some sort of. Uh, um, uh, exposure to some of those things, and we, we, we're not getting there. And, and that, to me, is uh, the biggest challenge that we have. Uh, I mean, we'd love to... to uh, we, we give uh, concessionary financing to, to, to youth, as an example, uh, uh, for buying into to companies or participating in companies from 26% uh, um, as youth-empowered uh, uh, companies, and then, obviously, 51% uh, upwards as youth-owned. Now, the problem is where we're going to find youth to, to move into some, something, uh, buy into a, a manufacturing uh, company without the experience and without the networks and without the, um, the old boys club that is behind them and the finance and the collateral and everything else. So there's a, there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done uh, to try and move 
entrepreneurs from just taking the, the, the space of the low, uh, the, the low obstacles, being in the service industry or, the, or retail, and moving into a productive uh, sector of society, uh, I mean, of the economy like the manufacturing side of it. So to me, that is my biggest challenge as it stands at the moment. <laughs> agreed, agreed, agreed. Okay, so coming back to Linda, um, so do you feel there's enough return data from a pension fund perspective uh, to be able to comfortably incorporate or model this asset class into an investment portfolio at the moment? And uh, do you see any potential return and diversification benefits? The, the return data, the history, yeah. uh, isn't easy to find. And even when you do find it, it's specific to a particular sector or a particular type of business. So it's not as easy to model because there are no indices. Mm. And maybe that's something that uh, the smart people in your industry can think about is to develop those kind of industry, uh, indices that can help us to establish that history and to be able to model the, the return and the risk uh, from it. Although, although I imagine it would still be very difficult to do because all businesses are just so diverse and there's survivorship bias and all kinds of data problems that creep into it. Um, in, and for excess returns, you said? Sorry? You, you had a question, your second part of your question? So, no, no, so the second part of it really was just to uh, say where you feel actuaries can add value from a sort of an LDI or asset liability modeling perspective. Yeah, when it comes yeah. To it. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so definitely in terms of the modeling. Um, the, the real challenge we have as a pension fund and as a large pension fund with investing in SMEs is the channels through, it, through which to do it. So we could buy into a business partners or some other entity that identifies the, the entities to be invested in and actually makes the, the decisions regarding the, the research, the due diligence, etc. because we don't have the capacity for it, quite frankly. It takes just as much due diligence to assess a 5 million rand business as it does a 500 million rand business. Uh, arguably, there are fewer uh, reporting mechanisms and so on, but, but uh, it, it actually takes effort and concerted effort and skill to identify the jockeys to back, to borrow from that metaphor, and also the businesses that have a chance of long-term success. And so that's the challenge we have. But I think, I think the, funds, the, the funds are there, uh, generally in the economy. I think of the CEO initiative that was set up to fund small businesses, one billion rand. One year later, I don't know who they funded. I'm not sure who the, the, the small SME business uh, ministry is funding. It would have been nice to have them on the panel as you'd invited them to find out. So, so I think the will, the capital is there. It's just the mechanisms for getting funds to the appropriate uh, investment. Okay. okay. Thanks, Will. And then just to follow up, um, have they, has there been any, any historical investment into SMMEs or uh, underlying fund managers that specialize in the space? Uh, which you have kept direct track of in your fund, uh, and how, they, how have they performed to date? If not, uh, can you infer from your fund's historic PE returns to date whether they could potentially give res reasonable uh, benefits from a return perspective? Um, I think the, the, the short answer to the first question is no. Um, the, uh, the nuanced answer you're going to get in a moment. But let me just uh, pause and say, we talk about entrepreneurship, but, but even the way we, we, we're sitting, 
you know, you have the entrepreneurs on that side, the fund managers here. Um, no wonder we're not cross-pollinating ideas and getting something done. Um, so next time in advisors, I'd like the seating to be closer so that we, you know, we can interact a lot more. I, I think this topic is actually excellent. Um, but you need to understand the other people's constraints and the other party's aspirations yeah. and find a way of making those return and risk balance. Yeah. Um, I mean, ha having said that, most of us, when we're thinking about entrepreneurs, as I said, we still have that, you know, United States, um, uh, Silicon Valley, maybe you've updated now, Finland is, is, is in the business of, of doing video games. Um, the Scandinavian countries, all of those uh, Angry Bird, all of those games that your children play. Well, uh, maybe I'm dating myself. Uh, I, I do have kids now that they play these things. Um, they are designed by the Scandinavian countries. And uh, where are they in the, in the maths and science? Top three. Um, if you are looking in Asia, um, in China, most of the guys who are starting businesses, they start in the States. Uh, with the bursting of the dot-com bubble, they went to China and, and they replicated exactly what they were doing in the States. Uh, the person who was working with Elon Musk went to China and is starting a hybrid company. Their market is 700 million people. He does not need to globalize. He's already there. Tencent uh, with the WeChat. So all the people who are doing all of this great entrepreneur, entrepreneur and venture capital where the returns are huge, they are putting a lot of intellectual uh, capital into it. So it's difficult then to do the same thing because in, 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 the, in the IT you can start with a million rand using your ideas generating to something else. It's difficult to do that space, uh, that uh, you know, uh, Stuart, in, in, the, in the industrial space. You know, you need to put 100 million mm -hmm. and to even get a 20% return is a lot. So who's going to give you 100 million rand? You're just coming out of varsity and uh, you don't have any track record. If we were to give money to that, you actually are going to be saying we have no reasonable basis to be giving this money to these guys. Um, the only time it works is when you're shelling out a five million rand a pop and you think that five million rand can multiply into a thousand rand into a LinkedIn or into Google and all those things. You know, when I was 20, Google was just coming up. There were a few nerds who knew that you had to use Google instead of using Yahoo. Nowadays, it's the largest company. Now, if you are not finding those opportunities in South Africa, and when we talk entrepreneurship, it's more, as I said, a franchisee or something in the industrial economy, something in the old economy, it's not going to be the same. So let's understand that, that unless we are pushing very hard in education and making sure that our kids are doing the programming so they can at least do those things, it's going to take a while. That does not necessarily mean that we can't do something right now. But I think we then need to say, what do we need to be doing? Um, we wanted to actually invest in a small medium enterprise initiative where we're going to have a number of um, franchisees. What we needed is someone's going to take the first loss. So again, risk guys, you know exactly what you do. Do, do some tranching. Have um, the DFIs, the Development Finance Institutions, the ITCs of this world, CIFA and all of those, or NEF, come and take the first slice then it becomes safer for pension funds to be able to say, well, okay, what kind of returns can we get? And we're going to put that money. So when you've got a grant of 100 million rand and you put that into a billion rand fund, all of a sudden you've got a billion rand. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, that 900 million rand from a pension fund, you'll never get until you've got that first loss trudge taken care of. So I think if we become systematic in the what we're doing, and we take all of this, the money, the grants, and all of those things that we can put together, then have a fund. And in that fund, make sure that we can pull our resources so someone's going to do the due diligence. You're going to be able to remove the, you know, the chances and leave the guys who are committed, who are going to put their, their skin in the game and, and, and be committed. I think it would work. Um, but they, they, there are no data points for that. It's just thinking about it from first principles, from risk and return perspective. And if we were to do something like that, we think it would work. Um, if you are looking at... Um, at what we have done in our impact funds, uh, because we've got private equity, we've got impact funds, and we've got, we've now launched real assets, uh, which will invest in infrastructure, uh, be it commercial or social infrastructure, as well as uh, direct property. But in impact funds, we basically are allowing ourselves the risk budget to have lower returns. We don't start wanting lower returns, but we allow ourselves to have those lower returns. So we can do a lot more. So we're looking at affordable housing, renewable energy, the number of things being done in that space. We're looking at uh, small, medium enterprises. Um, we've also included um, rural and township uh, shopping centers. Some of whom are also going to be taking the land shops. And land shops, these mums and pops, they tend to be entrepreneurial ventures. So I think we need to be a bit strategic in, in, what, in what we are doing. And if we were to find that first lost tranche, the number of transactions will do. Um, and also to uh, kind of hog the, the spot a bit because I'm the last one here, so I, I normally get these questions last. Um, there is a, um, a fund manager talking to us who's been talking to the uh, IDC I hear. Their idea is to come up with a clean tech fund where they've gone to China and found out that they're busy doing these things where it could be purifying water, it could be using boilers that are actually more energy efficient, they don't need to use coal, and it works, so it's a proven technology. But when it comes to South Africa, for those companies, South Africa is going to be a growth market. So it makes sense for the likes of an IDC to back them because they're going to be doing job creation. It will still be early stage investing, you know, there's no track record in South Africa, but something like that can be backed because you know that there are existing corporate or industrial buyers who are using those boilers, so you can easily identify so-and-so is using these boilers. And it makes sense to swap from something that is, has a high carbon footprint to something that is clean tech. So that is a, a lot more de-risked, yet it results in entrepreneurship, and yet it's not something that's in the so-called information technology or, or, or fintech. I think if we start having those conversations, I said, you know, coming a bit closer to each other, we are likely to get something done better. Yeah. I blame all mutual for this sitting, so I try to... It, 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 to and, and if I answer your, your question, I think there's a question you're meaning to answer, is how can we get this thing in, in the SAA? So when, when we do our we defined benefit pension fund, as pension fund, so we, we start with an ALM exercise, and... And actually, it's difficult to go and say, I'm going to model private equity returns and whatnot. It's difficult because, A, you're going to need a data series, uh, and it's probably going to have a, a huge correlation with equities in any case. So you might as well just uh, use equities uh, where you're going to have a, a long history data. 
but then the allocation to, to, to uh, private equity tends to be something we can use a, a risk budgeting approach to do. So for example, if you've allocated 41% to domestic assets, you can decide that of that 41%, you're gonna have an allocation to private equity, an allocation uh, to real assets. Uh, and even an allocation to hedge funds, um, if these are equity-related hedge funds, uh, if they are uh, bond-related hedge funds, then you, 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 you fund them from the allocation to, to, to bonds. So that's what makes sense to us. So, so even though there's no history data, you, you do your, your ALM uh, using the, the, you know, the big uh, traditional classes, but then within them, you are able to say, well, I'm going to have this allocation to private equity, this allocation to... Uh, and within private equity, this allocation to small, medium enterprises. Okay. Uh, we think in that way you can integrate it, and, and I think the, the actuaries will be able to, to deal with it. Yeah, I suppose data scarcity on this uh, specific asset class, or just broader alternatives in general, is you know a, an issue in and of itself. Um, just, so coming back to Lynette, um, so what are the top one to three things, uh, if you had to prioritize, that you would say, if you had to critique both the private sector and the public sector together to effectively form a more conducive environment for uh, entrepreneurship as well as uh, from a fund manager returns perspective? I think for me, I've always viewed it in the sense that if we're going to talk about the ecosystem related to entrepreneurship, then we've got to look at the environment, we've got to look at the market itself, whereby people are, are actually able to sell their goods and services. Um, and then within the context of, of, of both policy and practice. And those are typically the three areas that are critical for the survival of entrepreneurship, but are also the three areas where both the public and the private sector um, typically don't throw nearly enough focus on working together and breaking out of silos and creating systems that make sure that some of the structural inadequacies as well as the blockages that exist in the entrepreneurial ecosystem um, can actually be um, eradicated. So when I talk about environment um, specifically, it's about looking at saying in the public sector, um, for instance, are policies aligned to make sure that you know, the role of the SME is, is protected, the role of the, the SME is um, elevated in the discourse around um, economic growth and sustainability. And it's also about um, making sure that that same policy cascades down to all of the stakeholders who need to comply with it. So it's all good and well to have, um, for instance, a triple B scorecard that now has a huge emphasis on ESG in this country. And your buyers in the private sector are, you know, are both confused or against it. Um, and that's a real opportunity where creating an environment exists. And I mean, if you speak to a lot of your procurement managers in a lot of our corporates, and um, you know, it's it's quite disheartening at, at a lack of for lack of a better word around their thoughts around the ESD scorecard and then the following practices around it. The second um, area for me is then how the market plays. Your SMEs, by their very nature, don't start in Zanton, in the square mile you and I are seated in. They start in garages, they start in people's boots, they start at study desks in people's homes, 
And so there is a lot of informality around where they spring from, but there is a recognition there that there is a solution that's been created to respond to something in a society or in a, in a market. So when we look at what are the barriers to um, access related to the market itself, both from a public and a private sector perspective, you can't then just say to SME, well, play along um, or you know, fight, fight, fight at, at, at the level at which the rest of the market is fighting at, especially if that market has had a long time to be there and has resources and capacity which enables it to play at a certain rank um, of the ladder. You then, within the context of the markets, got to start changing everything from mindsets to buying patterns to how data is mined and then um, turned around um, in, into, rather should I say, converted in such a way that SME's products are able to secure space on the shelf, as it were. So we've got to then start different conversations, not just at the level of the consumer, but also at the level at which we determine um, market variables um, around SMEs and how we determine the rules and how we define um, the, 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 the business space, as it were, um, against the more established parameters that have been set by us in South Africa. Then on the third level, it's about practices. If we're going to be serious as a country, about SME development, then we've got to look at how we respond to SMEs. So it becomes simple things. Pay SMEs between seven and 14 days because cash is king. Like nothing else matters to an SME but cash. And cash is not just the ability to pay people, to pay your creditors, um, the ability to buy stock, the ability, no, cash is oxygen in an SME. It keeps both the owner and the business alive. Therefore, if you deny something oxygen for 30 days, 30 days to an SME is just too long. If you deny them 30 days at a time in an, on, in an ongoing recurring cycle, you never ever give that SME the opportunity to break through from one level to the next related to sustainability. It's just how it works. Um, practices is also about, as consumers, are we more intentional about how we buy? So if you're a corporate buyer, everything down, front, down to the stationery in your office, to what you wear as an individual, to where you fix and repair the, you know, your, your different um, equipment or cars, etc., etc. Are you intentional in the patterns that you create? and the conversations you create around that SMEs play a part, and within the context of them playing a part, what is our part to play in keeping them sustainable? Um, similarly, you know, and I guess you can, you can transfer the same issue around practices even across to our government sector, that when the, 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 the big beast does things the wrong way or denies um, SMEs both cash opportunities um, you know, and access through whether it's how processes are specifically run or through how collusion works in many, many instances and in many, many sectors, um, or through just established buying patterns that don't say, hey, there's a change in the market and there are new players in town, let's let them play. What you simply do through those practices is that you make it harder for SMEs to break through. You make it harder for SMEs to show you 
what they're made of. And you make it harder for SMEs to scale and replicate themselves, as well as to participate in opportunities that, given time, support, and the requisite capacity and even resources that are available to them, they can't get access because they can't match the rate and the pace of their growth to what's actually out there and how they then retain and attract certain of those opportunities. So for me, if there are three top areas that we almost need to invert our focus to, it's definitely the issue around policy, how we treat market access, and our practices. <coughs> Thanks for that. Um, Stuart, do you have anything to add on top of it? Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And um, uh, recently, um, we, we, we supported the uh, a hackathon on the trying to relook at the small uh, small and medium enterprise uh, uh, policy uh, program with the minister and uh, her department and, and obviously at 22 on Sloan and a couple of other places. So the issue of trying to look at policy and uh, is critical, and it goes further than just the SME sector. It's a, a, one of the areas that I'm passionate about and uh, I, I see as a, a growth uh, sector in the country is the social economy. And uh, the, 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 our social enterprises and, and, and similar institution, organizations they, uh, are really struggling because of the lack of a, a policy framework and, and so on. So we've, uh, and remember that in, in 2010 and the new growth path was uh, announced uh, uh, the minister had indicated that the social economy should uh, create 260,000 jobs if it grew at the same pace as everywhere else in the world. The problem is that the, uh, we cannot take advantage of that, uh, that opportunity because the policy environment doesn't exist. And we're in the process now of working with the uh, Department of Economic Development to, to, to do that. One of the things that we did as IDC was that we, um, we decided to pay the school fees and uh, created a, a social enterprise fund so that we could test some of these uh, various models and, and opportunities and, and so on, to, so that we could feed some of these learnings back into the, into the policy. Because it's no good just having a policy that you take from Scotland or uh, Australia or Canada or whatever. It needs to be very South African based. So the issue of the, the policy development process is critical. Um, we, we've been struggling with things like uh, how do we get investment into townships? And yes, we, we can go the route of, uh, of uh, uh, malls and that type of thing, but, but really there's, there's so much more than we can do. And the issue is that we need to test and try and, uh, a whole lot of new things. So uh, again, um, very interestingly, we've created a bit of a, uh, a fund called the Special Intervention Fund, which we use for this type of uh, testing. And, um, and, it's, and we're always looking for partnerships. One of the conditions is partnerships with the public sector, private sector, uh, uh, civil society, and communities. Um, the issue of, we use it very effectively also in what we call inclusive business approaches, trying to see, uh, getting into that supply chain of those corporates and that is very difficult for exactly the reasons you mentioned. Uh, they've got their statutory obligations on the side, but how do we uh, bring in the, uh, the groups of um, uh, entrepreneurs into the supply chains and, and, and value chains of these corporates and so on? 
And we, we've used this type of fund very uh, uh, effectively to try and uh, bring together these small entrepreneurs to participate there. Because those corporates really want uh, quality, they want scale, they want, uh, they want consistency of supply. And you can't leave it up to Dick, Tom and Harry to, to each negotiate. You, you want to bring them to scale and, uh, and so on. So there's very many ways in which we can do it. And I think it's, uh, it, it really needs a bit of different thinking. And it's also going to require a bit of type of blended financing. It's not all going to be uh, financial, the uh, uh, normal type of financing that, that we, we're probably well known for. But it's going to require some sort of uh, money that your, your returns are going to be on social outcomes rather than, uh, it comes back to the issue of impact investing um, and, and so on. I guess I could, uh, like to speak about this forever, but I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> okay, so coming back to the pension fund space, I think although largely um, they are quite principles and broad-based, uh, would you say there's a case for incorporating the principles of investing into SMMEs, into governance documents uh, for pension funds, such as PF 130 or the King Report? Uh, and how uh, how significant would you say trustee education is uh, in terms of overall, at least facilitating the discussion, not necessarily allocating investments into the underlying space? Linda. Yeah, I think there's a need for education all around. Yeah. So on the part of trustees, in terms of understanding uh, the, the various types of investment that are available to them and also alternative means of measuring success, so where it's not just about the financial return, but also about understanding the multiplier effects and the impact uh, on society and communities at large. So there's that part, but there's also, I think, big business as well needing to understand how their supply chains exclude the smaller businesses and talking about inclusion there and having it as a principle that can be embraced uh, throughout the private sector. Um, I, I don't know what sort of forum could be used for that, but it's definitely necessary. And I also wonder as well, education from um, the part of the entrepreneur. Can entrepreneurship be taught? I, I don't know whether it's something that's innate that comes naturally to some people or something where very focused and targeted education can have the desired outcomes. So as far as education goes, I think uh, all around. Yeah, okay. And I think this is a question for both Ndabezinja uh, and Linda. So how do you, do you feel that the ESG benefits, including uh, transformation in South Africa, have been taken, have been sufficient effectively uh, from a PE slash uh, necessarily includes SMME investments? Um, they can uh, actually improve a whole lot. Um, and not just in, in private equity, but also in the public market space. Um, it's easier to understand uh, the environmental impact, so the E part of it, as well as governance. Although uh, from December uh, last year until now, we are feeling the impact of people not doing proper governance, uh, and not just with Steinhoff, mm. uh, but also in the private equity with, uh, with the branch holdings. Mm. Um, uh, which most people didn't didn't uh, know much about, uh, so it, it's showing the imp uh, the importance of uh, taking the governance issues seriously, which um, have a cascading impact on a number of things. 
Um, the S is also important. Um, we believe that um, as signatories of uh, UNPRI and uh, uh, CRISA, um, we, we see the importance of, of ESG, um, but we think that most people don't fully integrate this, the social aspects of, uh, of ESG. Um, and we, which we think might vary from country to country or from continent to, to continent, depending on their level of development. Uh, in South Africa, we see transformation as part of that um, uh, social aspect or social sustainability. Um, if we don't do anything about it, uh, we will still be facing problems 10 or 20 years down the line, just like if we're not doing anything about the environment. Um, we're just producing and uh, polluting the air, we'll, uh, we'll obviously face the consequences. Um, we are in our mandates uh, that we, um, we, we give, or the commitments that we make to private equity companies, we do put side letters, which are basically is an, an addendum to say, you will do these other additional things, uh, transformation, BE is part of it. Um, taking ESG into account uh, is also an, an, another part of it. So a lot more can be done, um, and I think players who are thinking strategically would have already started doing so, um, but I think the awareness of it needs to come. When people are investing in private equity, they just tend to think of you know, 25% IRR, three times money, blah, blah, blah. No one mentions ESG, but we believe that doing things right makes sure that those, uh, those financial returns are sustainable. Yeah. Um, and, and not just as well in, in private equity, but even people who are doing the more like private um, equity investing in public, uh, in public equities, um, there are not many in South Africa, but there's a player who's wanting to do the same thing. And one of the things that we've said to them that if we do back them, and they'll be investing in just five to ten companies, uh, and they sit on the board, unlike normal asset managers who, who just have to use proxy votes. They'll sit on the board and be able to make sure that the management is uh, unlocking value financially and whatnot, but on top of that, making sure that issues of governance, issues of uh, other uh, aspects of ESG are, are taken into account. When you look at the indices uh, where you take ESG into account, those indices tend to outperform on other normal cap-weighted ind indices that don't take ESG into account. And we believe that uh, in private uh, markets, um, the same should apply. Sure. Linda, do you share the same sentiments around it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the transformation part, I think that Ndavi began with, uh, there's still a lot of progress to be made. And there are systemic, I think, obstacles to getting that transformation to be effected in the way that the policies set out to. So we, we, we have great policies, but somewhere in the implementation sometimes is where we don't achieve quite what we set out to do. And uh, for, as far as ESG is concerned, uh, you know, the GPF was a founding signatory to the PRI uh, going back almost 10 years now. So it's something that's within the DNA of the pension fund that in all our investment policies and our investment decisions, we're taking into account the environment, uh, the social impact, as well as governance factors. Easier said than done a lot of the time because you cannot measure it that well for every investment you make. But overall, that's the kind of ethos that underpins uh, our investment philosophy.
All right, so just to close off uh, the last two questions from my side before I open it up. Um, so sitting from an entrepreneur's perspective, uh, Lynette, uh, and this is a relatively high-level sort of philosophical question almost, uh, do you feel that providers of capital in South Africa are overly re uh, risk-averse or are too strict in the sort of requirements that they uh, require from new uh, sort of up-and-coming fund, um, sorry, entrepreneurs? Uh, because, I mean, obviously, risk is a necessary part of growth. You know, mistakes are necessary for, for businesses, to, uh, businesses to learn and thrive. Even established companies can make mistakes, but the difference is that they can get away with them as opposed to entrepreneurs. It's, it's an opinion. I know it's, uh, it's, a, it's a heavy question. I don't, I don't think it's an issue of risk. But in my experience, it's also an, an, an issue of research and interest. Most of the people who are responsible for capital in, and at least the disbursement of capital to SMEs in, in South Africa have no idea what they're dealing with with the corporates. They have not been into those businesses. They do not understand the dynamics, the nuances, and some of the very real-life challenges that do everything from influence why a business, a small business starts in this country. Um, all the way through to um, what some of the systemic issues that exist in our economy do to small businesses. So whether they take the risk or not, or whether they're adverse to it or not, is not really the issue. It's, an, it's just pure understanding of the SME markets in this country is something that is deeply, deeply lacking. There's too many people on one end sitting in the ivory tower, and there's too many people on the other end hoping that the ivory tower can see them. Yeah. And you've just got two separate people who just, when they do finally meet at the, at the deal table, as it were, don't understand each other from the get-go. So their ability to take risk with one another is not so much about has and have not, will and will not. It's about, well, who are you in the first place? And that displacement um, needs a lot of help. You know, one of the things that I, I, I often say related to how funding for SMEs in our country works and how the more formal and established market looks at entrepreneurship in particular, particularly related to SMEs, is that it's, it's almost like a grudge purchase in South Africa, the development of SMEs. And here's the thing, transformation, economic transformation in South Africa in particular is not CSI. It's not a charitable event. Um, and you label, you're not doing SMEs a favor by deciding to invest in them or not. Economic transformation in South Africa is directly linked to our ability to grow and sustain SMEs. It's not even about race or gender or age and all the other isms that exist in our society. It's related to growth and sustainability. And if we don't focus on that and we spend less time treating it like, you know, like charitable events, and more time beginning to treat it as an economic imperative, then we're going to see how the SMEs markets and space will begin to change the economic trajectory of, this, of, of the country as a whole in relation to growth. Because it's now quite a fucking fear that we're not going to get the type of growth numbers the country needs to keep going from the established sector. So it has to come from new blood. And we then therefore need to take new blood seriously. We therefore need to engage with the new blood seriously and engage with them not where we want to engage with them, but where they are. And only when we understand their language, their context, their location, 
um, and some of the barriers that they need to face and that established business can then therefore really begin to turn and help to turn, then only I'll be having a real conversation about growth and inclusivity and sustainability and you know the deliverable around the mandate related to economic growth in the country. Thanks. And as a last question to you, Stuart, before I open it up, um, do you see, do you think that there are areas where actuaries or actuarial skills uh, can play a role in improving outcomes, both from where you operate within the IDC, as well as from a, board, a broader sort of social planning or national policy perspective at a more government-related uh, level? What is it again you guys do? <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> No, absolutely. I think amongst the key things that I would say are critical is to see how you can ensure greater inclusion through your modelling, the participation and benefit of marginalised groups and that type of thing. It's really something that I think you people should take on board and make it happen. How do we ensure that the poor are uplifted through these models, not only just beneficiaries of, of some of these uh, uh, issues, but really taken with, with the, 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 uh, through these models. I think there's a, um, often you need to think of the negative impact, uh, what happens when you, you pull your funds or something is pulled because you might not necessarily reach the type of returns on investment that, uh, and what impact that has on, on, on people on the ground. I think there's a, uh, in the real world, uh, uh, change still re requires money, and uh, sometimes it's not necessarily only investment, uh, uh, wanting a return, it sometimes needs to be uh, some sort of other type of funding, um, and, and it needs to find a way in which to blend those, I think, um, because remember, you, uh, grant funding is a no-no very often, but what it does do is it, it provides a bit of a sustaining role. It, it, it provides that seeding sometimes. It's a, a, a certain amount of risk reduction and, and, and signaling. In other words, uh, some money goes in, and that's where I think sometimes we play these roles through these funds that I manage to try and uh, crowd in the support and, and so on. And I think, uh, the, the, coming back to your question, there's real opportunities, I think, in, in, in the sector at the moment. There's so many new movements coming on and how to, to bring people into the, in, into the uh, economy. There's a whole localist movement, the crowdfunding issues, the uh, alternative banking, social and impact investing, and social entrepreneurship. I think there's a lot of room for actuaries to, to play a, a significant role in uh, not necessarily just maximizing profits for your investors, but really playing a role in driving uh, a, a social dividend as well, sure. uh, and so on. But again, um, yeah. I'll, I'll. Okay. okay, thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to open the floor up for questions, both uh, Joburg and Cape Town. We have a question in Cape Town. Yeah. Thank you, Holzhausen. Um, firstly, a comment. Uh, when I started in the industry, the kinds of assets that make up the 15% that you refer to are, just were nowhere and were as scary as some of the SME opportunities seem today. So I'm still alive, so I do think that um, we need to look at the SME opportunities that the excellent panel has highlighted. 
I'd like to pick up a point that Ndabe Zintle raised um, regarding clean tech. Um, as an aside, I've been involved with the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries uh, Resource and Environment uh, Workgroup, and I've been doing some reading recently, and a comment was made that we don't have enough uh, data regarding the clean tech. An interesting asset liability modeling opportunity that perhaps the Alternative Investments Committee can consider. And that is that the various sources of fuel or of energy. Sorry, can you just repeat uh, the, the, the sound just keeps breaking a little bit? Sorry about that. Yes, I'll try again. So I just really wanted to highlight regarding clean tech. Um, the various sources of producing energy actually use up energy. So some obvious modeling for perhaps an interested student in the alternative investment is, could, is to, use, to do the classical asset liability modeling um, regarding the different sources of fuel, uh, sorry, of energy. Because certain classes use much less fuel than other classes to produce fuel. So there's a, a nice classical optimization problem just waiting for a nicely trained actuary to get his hands on. And I think Stuart was also saying there's a lot of modeling that we can do if we just have a fresh eye. And, and, and Lynette right at the start said that we need to have a fresh, uh, look at risk with a fresh, fresh yeah. eye. So just endorsing everything that everybody has said and saying that uh, I can think of one very practical example where there is data where we can probably start to do some modeling that, that will start to create clean tech. Uh, I, don't, I don't think SME necessarily is SME and are therefore high risk. You can really start to balance, to move away from, from various types, you don't, not, not to move all the assets, but anyway, I've spoken enough. So really just saying, I mean, modeling side of things, and there's a lot more data than we think if you just go looking for it. Thank you. Thanks. <coughs> right, I'll bring the microphone up to you. <coughs> Hi, Alan Chan. Sorry, just a, I mean, I know the panel already alluded to the gap between the left and the right here, but uh, just mainly focusing on Stuart. Sorry, obviously IDC has invested in a number of different businesses, and surely there should be a lot of data on that side, which could assist an investment manager to come and do a study and say, hang on, here's this asset class which fits into the data modeling for investments, which would certainly aid the, the, the pension funds on the right. I don't know if that's been done yet or how many, as a previous speaker also, well, the questioner asked, you know, the data must be there somewhere. Can I respond? Um, absolutely. I, and I think we have a, a very dedicated uh, de department within IDC called Research and Information. Um, they're the, the economists and so on that uh, look at... Uh, um, not only at IDC's investments and uh, and so on, but also country risk and 
a whole range of different sectors, uh, sector analysis, and, and so on. I, I don't see why there wouldn't be a, uh, there would be an issue uh, for, for I think, in a, a situation like this for George Meyer, who is the head of that department. I think that's the type of thing he'd love to, 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 to look at collaboration. Look at IDC uh, specifically needs to. Uh, we're in a very unique situation that we we have one foot in public sector and we have one foot in the, the private sector. And uh, so it's a really a great, uh, uh, can be advantageous. Uh, and the issue is about creating those partnerships between uh, different players, but uh, certainly with the, sec the private sector and public sector. So I think there's, a, there's an opportunity. Uh, I wouldn't be able to speak on behalf of George, but I'm sure that he has uh, all that type of information uh, within his uh, is it will be able to access it through his uh, his team. Um, maybe there's something in the future you can look at uh, pulling him. I represent you. Here's another question. Uh, this is to Sir uh, Two questions, really. The first one is, you did mention how this was have embodied this culture of having mathematics top three. So in developing that, knowing that South Africa is not the best in that, how do we build on education and make sure that the culture of the children or the people studying, actually they are meant to be building all these things and at the same time be incorporating each and everything and making sure that the other section is still growing in a sense. And then the second question would be, um, do you feel that incorporating maybe these uh, environmental and um, sustainable growth into an organization would mean more or less funding, better funding opportunities and that historical funding that you spoke about? Um, I think uh, maybe to start with your first question, uh, we are not by any means saying that only uh, you know the, the maths boff, boffins uh, are worth funding when it comes to entrepreneurship. Um, but I am making the point that there you are able to deploy a limited amount of money and have the multiples that actually, even if you're wrong, they'll pay for the other things. So I think what we've probably not had the ability to do is to expatiate on this. When people are investing in venture capital in other countries, they tend to back 10 or probably 20 opportunities. And you might find that it will be one in 20 or one in 10. That will really be an outstanding success, but it will pay for all the others. Um, I've, I've mentioned the, the, the likes of Google and, and, and others, um, and you can read up more about that. But you normally find that with technology, either FinTech or or, or, um, or information technology, what now is coming up is, is medtech, where you can, using um, people's brains, they can come up with novel way of doing things and the market is, is huge. So in that case, even if you've got none or so that didn't work well, you are still able to um, still have a good returns. And therefore, the suppliers of capital, because they also want to have a return, and the suppliers of capitals are you and I. You've got a pension fund, you're going to be sitting on the other side and wanting that money to, you know, to, to, to earn a return. They want to make sure that at least when they're looking at a 
large numbers of, of, of all these venture capitals that they've been uh, backing, there is a good return. Um, and I think in South Africa, we have a good uh, education. It is not ubiquitous. It is not widely spread. And I think we can use technology. We can use things like broadband in, in Fraco. You've got Dark Fiber Africa. You've got Vumatel. To be able to connect to the schools in the outlying areas and be able to have the good teachers teach the ones in the rural areas. Um, there are already initiatives where if you, I'm not going to promote any of the insurance companies here, but there's an insurance company that has a community trust where if you're starting a, a, an affordable private uh, school, we'll back you. Okay, it's for you to do your homework. Um, but imagine if you had that and you would partner with a high school that, that actually could have teachers and you connect them via broadband. Uh, so I think things like that w w would help. Uh, however, I do think that moving into where we are, because uh, we've got a generation that was disadvantaged for a long time. Um, yes, their children are going to do it, but they themselves need their parents to be earning some money so they can take them to school. What do you do about them? So I think our response has to be holistic. So another part of it is that's why we're going to come back and say, look at your supplier chain, your ESG, make sure that some of the things that you don't have to be doing, you can outsource. Property is a good example. And, uh, you know, Lynette has done a lot of stuff in that area. Um, you get the likes of Growth Point and likes of, of Redefine. And they've got, you know, shopping centers uh, from here to Timbuktu. Um, and there are some easy things like pest control. I can tell you each and every shopping center has to have pest control. And it's not a rocket science thing. If you package that and you give a, a contract to a, an upcoming entity that can have a certificate of how to do pest control in three months, you will make a difference. And those are some of the things that we're saying when we invest and saying, we need to make sure that those things are cascading. It's not just doing some ownership uh, transaction at the top, as important as it is, it needs to cascade down to, to other levels. The other section, though, is when people are wanting funding on the industrial space. And, and a point that we're making that if you don't hear anything else, hear this point is, if all of us are doing our little things in different corners, we'll be like those people who are just knocking on the door, in like knock, knock. But if we combine our efforts, we'll be like that battering ram, if you can just think of those old movies, they'll take a big tree and sharpen it at the end, and all the soldiers will hold it. You know, you can break down uh, the doors and open. And I think that if we would be able to find those who've got grants funding, and it won't be 10 billion that they might have, it might be 2 billion rand. But that 10 billion can be leveraged 10 times, because if you can come up, as I said, that first lost charge, by the way, it's not just giving money away to pension funds. It's saying, yes, if this thing works well, you're going to have exorbitant uh, returns that you're going to be able to use to fund your, your next developments. But the pension funds might be happy with something that gives them CPR plus 6%, because uh, you know, according to the uh, required actual rate of return, you probably need CPR plus 4.5 or CPR plus 5.5. Uh, depending on your funding uh, level of funding. So if you can have something that is likely to give you CPR plus 6%, 7%, because mistakes happen, so you, know, you want to be able to still make, meet, meet your things, that's about 12 13%. 
anything else above that, the, the one who's taking the first loss tranche can have those excess profits. You will be able to access money that's already done. You know, we don't need to be educating trustees about wanting to allocate this. They've already done so. They just said do it in a, reason, in a responsible manner. And the responsible manner is take the, all the grant fund that's already there, put it together, put it into a fund. Then you're going to find a manager who's going to actually go knocking in each and every door and know the business of, of SMEs. It, it, it won't be um, fair to expect uh, someone who's a CEO or CIO on, on some pension fund looking after everything to know each and every one. But there is a portfolio manager, there is a fund manager who, uh, when they're looking after a billion rand fund or two billion rand fund, will make it their business to know that. That's all. If you do that way, we'll be able to allocate money to that manager because that manager has seen many things, has kissed many frogs to find the, the right prince, will be able to actually allocate the right amount of money to according to skill, and will be doing something that has that safe tranche that makes it possible for pension funds. So that when we are disclosing, as the requirement is going to be going forward, if I'm listening to what pension, pensioners are wanting, every investment we make to be written down, no one is going to be complaining that you guys have invested in this, you know, what is this? You've lost money in this. But if we are doing it in, in such a manner that it's still rest, but at the same time it still works for the entrepreneurs because they're going to get the funding. It works for the, the DFIs because they then get to disperse that money. I think it will work. It, 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 it's, a, it's a concerted, uh, multi-pronged effort that should be aimed at making sure that we make a difference. Um, I, I, I don't know if that got, it captured um, your, your second question as well. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to take two more questions, uh, either Cape Town or Joburg, just for, for time's sake, and we'll effectively wrap up the session. Okay, we've got one here. Um, well, my, hello. Uh, my question is to Stuart. So, I mean, like, entrepren like when uh, people want to start up businesses, small entrepreneurs, they're just starting up, they need seed funding or maybe an angel investor or something like that. Um, the, one of the biggest problems is, is it's a cash flow problem. Uh, as Lynette said, cash is king. If I'm trying to start up and I have a funder and the funder is, has funded me, given, allocated a certain amount, but um, my business fails because of the cash flow, uh, what do you guys do about that? Or do you just give, uh, do you just allocate the funds and then uh, uh, just wait it out to see if it fails or, or, or not? Or do you guys uh, uh, put emphasis or effort onto the cash flow management of that uh, startup or that uh, business? You're a young man, so I'm going to uh, basically respond as if you're a youth uh, client. I mean, coming to IDC sometimes is intimidating. I mean, and it's. Uh, it's a big building, it's an old building, it's uh, got lots of old people in it, and uh, engineers and accountants and, and the like. Um, but it's really intimidating for young, young entrepreneurs to, to go there. First of all, we've taken them out of the, the, the comfort zones by the type of businesses we finance. I mentioned it before, the industrial space and the, maybe film and uh, media and uh, a couple of other uh, sexier stuff, uh, you know, but, uh, but generally it's, it's, it's about industrial development. Um, 
So what we have, uh, what we've done in my department is is to try and address that. I have a sp particular unit uh, or uh, group uh, of guys in my department that actually will handhold the, the client right through uh, the IDC, um, identifying uh, not only uh, helping them with the the the, the, the pre-investment support. Uh, but also the, the support during the, 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 the transaction, for example, meeting certain CPs and that, and then uh, dealing with issues of uh, post-investment, the business support uh, and, and the like. Um, the last thing we want to do is to, to fund a business that, that, uh, that, that goes under. I mean, we lose jobs, we lose money, we lose everything. So we also have a particular unit in uh, IDC which looks at, uh, it's almost like an intensive care we call it workout and restructuring and so on, which really supports and provides the type of support. As I mentioned, my, uh, the, the, the department I, I, I head has, um, has particular interest there and guys that are used, used to youth type transactions. So they will be able to identify, put you in touch with the, the rest of the ecosystem, bring in what we need to, to, to do and then uh, make sure that it works. Uh, obviously, we can't do that with every client, but we have a particular focus, as I say, on these development outcomes that we want to, to achieve the youth, the women, uh, uh, black industrialists, the uh, township economy, employees, for example. And then we try and be creative as possible and innovative, uh, using, as I say, these two funds that I have uh, and see how we can be uh, yeah, creative in making some of these things happen. Uh, uh, whether we, 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 we bring in uh, your employees as, uh, as uh, shareholders and then we have a different type of program to help them uh, uh, benefit from that. But at the same time, it de-risks you and it's, uh, uh, you know, there, there's many ways in which we try and be uh, creative around it. So there's no one size fits all, but uh, the guys that in the team uh, would be able to, to take every youth client uh, and handle them and see what specifically they, they require. Um, sorry, I was focused on the youth issue, but, uh, but yeah, we would do that for the development outcomes. Great. Okay, so final question on the floor. Uh, it sounds like you do have a very clear scope of the type of fund manager that you anticipate or the type of fund manager that you want. Be looking at it from the perspective that a VC is an asset class in South Africa. It's more of a copy and cut and paste method from your Silicon Valleys, etc. However, my question is, um, are you not concerned about the fees that are charged by the intermediaries, the VCs, such that when the capital gets to the end user, which is the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is under pressure, extreme pressure, to perform, whereas the VC is playing an intermediary role and charging upfront fees, they charge 2 to 20%. I'm not too sure how they, they price it nowadays, but they get their money upfront before any job is done. Shouldn't they be perhaps maybe looking at it from a South Africa perspective and perhaps only cashing out on carry and not looking at the upfront uh, fees? Thank you. Okay. Um I think generally we we are pushing fees downwards um, in this low return environment. One of the things to do is to make sure that uh, managers are earning the fees that they that we pay them. So the the two and twenty is no longer the norm. We we, we do push that up. Um, 
Um, having said so, we in the venture capital space, as I said, there are not many funds that one can speak of. Um, we, there is a policy to say in the impact funds you'd invest in small and medium enterprises. The opportunity to put in there, uh, the ones we've seen have not really come being something that we can invest in. Uh, some that we've looked at, we've made proposals to actually say, can we have a layer that could de-risk? So those are still ongoing. So it is unlikely to be uh, what you normally find in the Silicon Valley, uh, copy and paste of that. It's going to be something more uh, suitable to South Africa. Um, and in that space, we are not expecting the, 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 the 2 and 20 model. Uh, expecting something, fees that are, are lower. Obviously, they, they need to allow the fund manager to be able to operate. Um, so more kind of cost recovery as part of, of the fee. And then you could have the, the carried interest that they can participate in. Um, and that carried interest coming at the end of the fund, you know, almost uh, five, ten years down the line. So if we've done that, we'll be able to align the interest. But we are not even on the starting blocks yet. Uh, well, we are because we have a policy and we know what we want to do. Um, I think the conversation that have been happening needs to continue happening in such a way that we can de-risk the opportunities. And when we've de-risked, uh, we might not even be seeing any technology thing in there. It will just be something that is uh, suitable for uh, for South Africa. Uh, but uh, I think a point that um, is also need to be made is we are trying to encourage other pension funds, and it's good you know, that uh, my colleague and I are together here, um, that it should not be seen as only GEPF is doing this or only EPPF is doing that, but mm -hmm. that we come together because there are some pension funds that are not big enough to have their internal resources, which is why when, as an entrepreneur, you go to them, they will say, well, nice, we, we like it, but there's nobody to analyze it. And the asset consultants that uh, some of them are in the room, they might not necessarily offer those services or they would offer them at a fee. Um, so it's, it's important for the pension funds, which tend to be advised by actuaries, to come together and work together and to see, as they've done in the UK, so they've actually put some uh, pools, uh, maybe there might be five or eight in that pool, and they'll share um, costs on doing the due diligence, as well as um, information uh, about those investments. So that even smaller pension funds that maybe are, are not, you know, 20 or 40 million rand, a billion rand, uh, can still invest in, in, in this asset process. I think if we do that, we are likely to make sure that the fees remain affordable, so that most of the money goes to the entrepreneurs, and that there are more um, asset owners who are contributing. Okay. Okay, uh, I think it's impossible to really wrap. Uh, this is quite a, a, a meaty topic, and it's impossible to really to cover almost everything in a, in a single hour and a half session. But uh, some critical points have been raised. Uh, this is an ongoing conversation. It's, it's not something that's going to stop here. And it's something that the Alternative Investments Committee is uh, where it can and is able to, is committed to, to helping the industry uh, you know, towards uh, making progress on. Uh, so we've run out of time. There will be, if you have any extra questions, I mean, obviously there's uh, some time for networking outside if you want to talk to any of us uh, or the speakers directly. Uh, but I do thank you for coming to the first uh, session of 4 2018. Um, the second session will happen towards the end of the year. 
covering one of the asset classes and one of the critical issues around the industry that we do focus on within the committee. But uh, could we please give a round of applause for our guests? And uh, we thank you very much for making the time to come down.